This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. The word heart is a truly important word in the English language. In the introduction to his new book, With All Your Heart, Westminster Seminary California's Craig Troxell observes that one can have a change of heart. One can give one's heart to another. We say, she broke my heart. His heart was in the right place. As children, we promised, I cross my heart. We speak from the bottom of our hearts, but we don't always have the heart to tell others the truth. We lose heart. We gain heart. We wear it on our sleeve. We put our heart into it. The heart is at the heart of our language, but also at the heart of the Christian life. Dr. Craig Troxell is professor of practical theology at Westminster Seminary, California. If you've not met him yet, please listen to the episode from October 7, 2019. It's available at wscal.edu slash office hours, and that's one word. Craig comes to us with 25 years of pastoral experience after serving Bethel Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Wheaton and Glenside OPC in Glenside, PA. He joins us today to discuss his new book, With All Your Heart, available now in the bookstore, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Craig, and welcome back to Office Hour. Hello, Scott. Good to be back. So what prompted you to write this book? Did the Lord lay it on your heart? (laughs) Well, yes. In a manner of speaking, yes. Probably a lot of things contributed to it, and I won't give you the long version. Reading John Owen and some of his popularizers like Chris Lungard, Enemy Within, where the heart is defined. And then I would say, after working with that understanding of the heart, that grid, if we could put it that way, or model, that the Puritans, I think, all assumed, that's one of the things that I think the book is about, Overlaying that with the vocabulary we see for sin, and that came to me pretty radically when I was preaching Psalm 51. The first two verses, you see the three most often used words for sin in the Bible, and seeing how those lined up so well with these different functions of the heart, you know, the mind, the cognitive part of the heart, and the desires are what the Puritans called the affections, what we desire, what we long for, what we crave for, what we love, and then also the will, the volitional part of the heart. And then I had long... Really, probably, since the very beginning of my ministry, probably was more familiar with Christology than any of the other loci of theology. And so the threefold office of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, that came to me as well as lining up. And so that really, if somebody were looking at the table of contents, they would see that those just gave you the organization of the entire book. And so when those pieces came together, that's when it dawned on me to do a Sunday school series. And it just so happened that an editor from Crossway was a member of the church and afterwards said, you should write a proposal to Crossway. Nice. It's nice when it works out that way. Yeah. <laughs> well, that means that somebody recognized the intrinsic value of what you were doing and saying. So I'm looking here at Psalm 51, looking at, at heart. So I'm glad you said that. So the listener needs to know that this isn't just something that you fabricated. This is something that you were initially right. driven to by Scripture. For example, verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And there's a parallelism there between the inward being, this is the ESV, and the secret heart. And, of course, most famously, verse 10, right, which sometimes we sing in worship, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. There's our doctrine of sanctification. Yeah, very much. Progressive sanctification, the gracious, gradual transformation wrought in us by God the Holy Spirit. 
So this is interesting because you mentioned the Puritans, and I understand what you mean by that, but fill that in because that's a loaded word. Puritans. Sure. Well, it's a wider movement, and you would know the years better than I would, but I'm thinking chiefly, you know, the 17th century representatives in England in particular. These men, I think, understood where to aim when it came to preaching and when it came to writing. And it's very clear that their target was the heart. And they understood that heart was complex. They weren't just aiming at the mind. They weren't just trying to persuade people intellectually. They understood that they really needed to reach down into the affections. And what is it that we're attached to? What is it that we love? And until you get to that point and really begin to get into the mushy area, then your efforts are not going to be as successful. They're not totally wasted. So they understood this, I think. And eventually you're calling for disciples of Christ to choose Christ and to stand for him, to turn their back on the world. And so there you're involving the volitional part of the heart. Well, when you start to read the sermons in particular, you see that they're just not wasting time flirting around with ideas. And what's so ironic is that, you know, the Reformed heritage is accused of perhaps being overly even rationalistic, some would say. There's one contemporary person who's saying that very much. And then, on the other hand, what you see is that these were men of the heart, very much like Calvin, a theologian of the heart. It's very clear that Calvin is not interested in just dwelling in the clouds, and it's important to be there sometimes and have people reach up to these glorious transcendent truths. But if that is not hitting you at the very core of your being and really challenging your own idols and the things that you love too much, then you could even say, what are we doing? And so the Puritan movement, I think, was very concerned about this, about serious discipleship. What does it mean to follow Christ? And if you're not offering him your heart, then what are you offering him? Well, exactly. And Calvin's motto was? Yeah, I offer you my heart sincerely and promptly. Yeah. And it's the hand. The graphic is the hand with the heart in it. So Reformed theology, properly understood, it really is a religion of the heart. It's not merely a religion of the mind. And so this gets me to this dichotomy that we often encounter and that I know you're passionate to address in the book. This is one of the burdens of the volume in a way. It seems to me, anyway, mm-hmm. as a reader, that this dichotomy that we often hear between head knowledge and heart knowledge. Right. And you want to obliterate that, it seems to me. Yeah, I think to bring us back to how Scripture would have us see it. And I think, you know, when a friend is speaking to us in those terms, we understand what they're trying to get at, you know, and I think we need to be gracious listeners at that point. But ultimately, technically, that's not a good distinction to make between the head and the heart, because the heart, I think this is especially true in the Old Testament. It is, more often than not, in the Old Testament, the word lev, levav, our Hebrew words for heart, refer to the cognitive element of who we are. You see that coming out, especially in the wisdom literature, which is the highest per capita appearances of the word heart over 200 times in the wisdom literature. So that's telling us something. So like when you read the book of Proverbs and it says this fool, he lacks sense or lacks understanding, as some of the modern translations put it, if you were to look at the Hebrew, the phrase is he lacks heart. Mm. And it helps to make the point. I was reading the other day in B.B. Warfield where he talked about the Reformation. It makes a distinction between the material principle and the formal principle. And in parentheses it says, and of course the heart, that cognitive faculty of man. And it's because B.B. Warfield understood biblical literature. So that heart in Scripture is a comprehensive term. Yes. It doesn't merely signify our affections. It also signifies our understanding or our intellect, and it can signify more than that. Right. So our translations don't always carry over the idea or don't signal to us, hey, the phrase at work here is heart. Right. But because of the way it gets translated, that might enable the reader to make distinctions that really aren't present in Scripture. Right. And in modern-day translations, sometimes what you're reading in your English version, it will say the mind, when literally 
its heart. But the context, it's so obvious, it's so clear that the author is trying to highlight what I know, my understanding or my reflection or my meditation, that an English translation will go with mind. And so you can sympathize with the translator because if he or she puts heart there, then we're going to say, well, wait a second, but the heart has to do with feelings. Well, it does, but as you just said, it's more than that. And I think you know, one of the most important things to understand is that Scripture helps us to appreciate, like in Romans 1 other places, that our thinking always has an agenda. Our thoughts are on an errand. There's a trajectory, or we're tacking in a certain direction, because we have these motives. And it shows how our thinking is very much influenced by our desires and our will. And so in the New Testament, you get this language where, for instance, when Christ is speaking to Peter, and Peter is saying, no, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem and suffer. And Christ says, get behind me, Satan. He says, you have set your mind, not on the things of God, but the things of man. And what he's saying there, that phreneo, that Greek term, means this path that you're going down. And it's rare that we have these disparate, unattached thoughts Usually they line up, heading in a direction. Well, what's influencing that? Well, it's our heart. It's because all these things are wrapped up together. Our mind, our affections, and our will, it's all together. And so there's always this agenda at work in my thinking. It's not some sort of like pure, objective, coming out of an antiseptic laboratory, like where they make you know microchips. It's not like that. And that's why it's so important to appreciate why it is that the cognitive element of who we are is included in the heart and why it's part of this overall complex package that God made for us. So Psalm 51 actually connects the heart with wisdom, which is not exactly intellect, not exactly feelings. It's discernment. It's judgment. It's understanding the nature of things. It covers a range of ideas. Right. Well, even think about what's the beginning of wisdom. Well, Proverbs tells us it's a fear of the Lord. Well, that's a posture of the will. That's saying, I submit to him. I'm not running the show. And I run my life in, in light of the fear of God. That involves my volition. That, that's a choice. That's a commitment that I make. And so it brings that in as well. That comes out actually in verse 17 of Psalm 51 where it talks about it's a broken heart. Is, that is an acceptable sacrifice to God. It's not a self-willed, you know, rebellious, strong will that's resisting God. No, it's this broken heart. And it doesn't mean broken over sin. It, it means it's broken in terms of its humility and its posture before God. Yeah, and we know that because it's a contrite spirit. And then heart and spirit are synonyms. Right. So what we're really learning here in this volume, and we're talking with Dr. Craig Troxell about his new book, With All Your Heart, Orienting Your Mind, Desires, and Will Toward Christ. And it's available in the bookstore at wscal.edu slash bookstore. And uh, they'll be happy to send that out to you. What we're learning here is the Christian doctrine of humanity, Mm -hmm. theological anthropology. Right. But not just the doctrine, but also the life that flows out of that. Right. You are, after all, professor of practical theology. So, (laughs) right. You can't help it. (laughs) That's right. You're not content. And you shouldn't be content to leave us simply knowing the doctrine. Right. You want to go on and press us to internalize it and then to begin to live in a way that accords with that. Right. And that's why, you know, in Proverbs 4.23, when it talks about, you know, to keep the heart, because it's from this one place, this governing center, flow all the issues of life. Your whole life flows from this. That's what Christ taught. It's not what you put in your mouth in his response to the Pharisees. It's what comes out of your mouth, because it's your mouth that reveals all the ugliness and the sin, you know, and the envy and the selfishness and pride that are lurking there. I wanted to get to this, but since you mentioned it, you have a wonderful phrase in the book to describe Hmm. the mouth. What do you call it? The ambassador. 
Yeah, the ambassador of the heart. I think that's terrific because it really captures, I think, the biblical relation between the two things. How do we know what's in a person's heart? Well, as you say, Jesus said it's not what goes in, it's what comes out. And so what comes out of the mouth is a reflection of what's in the heart. Right. And usually it's commissioned to do so, but sometimes it's not. And so ambassadors misspeak. <laughs> True enough. I think it's Jay Dalma in his book on the Ten Commandments. He says that, that heart is like an executive session of a board. And everything is supposed to be secret and stay in that room. But it gets out. It eventually leaks out. And so that's why if you want to know what's in somebody's heart, just hang around the wall. They'll tell you, even when they don't mean to. And we always tell more than we mean to. You know, as a pastor, you always learn that a church member is always telling you more than they really meant to tell you. But we're all doing that all the time. It's just coming out. The subtle tone of my own self-sufficiency and, and my pride or my materialism, you know, or my lust or my selfishness. It, it's coming out. And that's what Christ is teaching us. That's why it's such an important gauge for where we are. And there's times when your spouse or a loyal friend said, I don't know if you heard yourself, but this is what I heard. Are you dealing with something here, you know, or do you realize that your words hurt this person or are you sad? And it's so helpful in that Christ tells us this. It's almost like this billboard or this, you know, it's this conduit that's leaking. So it's a very, very helpful category that Christ gives to us. It's very tangible, very practical. So at the heart of our problem, before we get to anything else, is sin right. and the relationship between sin and the human heart and the consequences for the human heart and not the pump in your chest. Right. And we're not talking about that. We're talking about uh, something else that is equally essential to who and what you are, about the effect and the affect of sin on the human heart and what the heart needs. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So what is the relationship then, Craig, between sin and the heart and what does the heart need above all things? Well, I think this is what's so helpful about Scripture is it doesn't just give us one word for sin. It gives us a cluster of terms. And those terms, the meaning of those terms, the significance of those terms come out as we understand these different functions of the heart, this threefold complexity of the heart. So, for instance, the mind. It's very helpful, as Christ shows us in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just what you do or say. It's what you think. So sin begins there in the secret chamber of our heart. And we need to appreciate the fact that our stealing, you know, began as greed or envy within. You know, adultery begins with lust in the heart. There's so many things that have been incubating in the heart in our secret thoughts. So it begins there. And as we also think of the most often used word for sin, it means to fall short, to miss the mark. And I think that's really helpful because what it suggests is that it's not that I didn't know better. I know I'm supposed to do my devotions this morning. I'm accountable for that. But I fell short. I didn't do them. And that's often the case with sin in our lives. And so we think of the sins of the mind. It's falling short of what we understand and what we're accountable to. And that helps us to appreciate what we call sins of omission. We often tend to think so much about sins of commission, things that we do. But omission are duties that we omitted or failed to do. But that's important, too. And so here's where just one category sin helps us. So with regard to the desires, this is where we see the importance of the word iniquity in Scripture, which means to pervert or to distort. So it's something pure that we make unclean or impure, something that was straight, we make it crooked. Well, as we think of the desires, wow, yeah. this is very, very powerful to appreciate. 
One of the passages I learned early on in my Christian life was Jeremiah seventeen nine, And I don't think, I'm sure I didn't appreciate the, the implications, the consequences, and what's really being said here. But it is certainly true. Jeremiah seventeen nine: the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. I think it was the NASB that I learned. ESV says desperately sick, but desperately wicked. Who can understand it? So this is an inheritance we have from the fall. Right. This comes from Adam. This comes from our being in Adam. When he fell in Adam's fall, sinned we all. So all of us are born with a corrupt heart. So it's not just our affections. It's our intellect, the things that we think, the way that we think, our thinking faculty, our effective faculty, that is the things that we love and the way that we love, and our volitional faculty, the things that we choose and the way that we choose. Right. Oh, it's comprehensive, the effects of the fall. Yeah, no, it's, and it's very helpful because, you know, why am I deceived in my heart about this? Well, it's not just my thoughts. It's because what I want, you know, and our first anniversary, and I give my wife a skill saw. You know, I can tell myself, you know, oh, she'll really appreciate this. But, yeah. but, but, but maybe there's something else at work here, you know. Men don't do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Those are my desires. You know, maybe She, she really needs a, a new lawnmower. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> that, that's a really bad strategy for a happy home. But, but you know, it, it just goes to show that, you know, that this has taken place on, on many levels. I mean, the other area, too, I forgot to mentioned was the will, you know, and just the word transgression in scripture, it means rebellion. Think of how that lines up so well with our will. And it's not, and I think this is important to understand, that the will is two-sided. So as an unbeliever, on the one hand, I'm very rebellious and stubborn against God. I'm digging my heels. No, I'm not going to bend my knee. But on the other hand, I'm weak because I caved to sin and I'm enslaved to it. So when God gives us a new heart, as he says he will in Ezekiel 36, you know, take out that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, something that's alive and real, it reverses. So now my will of my heart is strong and resistant towards sin. And I turn my back upon the world and I hate those things. But on the other hand, now my will is tender is submissive to the leading of the Spirit as he shows me in Scripture my duty. It desires, truly, I could say, uh, as a Christian with all my heart, I desire to follow Christ. Even those moments when I'm not doing it, that's not what I want, you know. And so sin comprehends all these things. And so what does the heart need? It needs grace. And it's the grace that comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ in his threefold ministry of prophet, priest, and king, that he is not subcontracting out this work of sanctification, <laughs> that he is actively involved as the Lord of my heart yeah. to rearrange, to renew, to reform, to restructure, and to winsomely bring me along that path of righteousness. So I truly am following the new desires of my heart. The triune God gives to the dead sinner new life, true faith, a new heart. Mm. And then as a consequence of that union, gives us union with Christ by the Holy Spirit, and as a consequence of that union is at work in us, gradually conforming and renewing our heart. Now, no Christian in this life is ever going to have, and you have a really nice account of this in the book, right? We're talking with Dr. Craig Troxell about his new book, With All Your Heart. You have a really nice account of that, the ongoing work of the Spirit uh, in our hearts mm. and the struggle that precipitates in us. And we never arrive, but we are on the way. Right. And I think that's really important because a lot of Christians, if you ask them, are you justified? And they would say, oh, yes, absolutely. I'm justified by faith and his grace is sufficient. But if we ask them, do you have a pure heart? Yeah. You know, well, that was where I was going. Thank you. Pure heart. Your account of what it means to say pure heart. Yeah. We don't, I don't think, as you suggest in the book, probably understand fully what that means. Talk about that for just a minute. Right. Pure heart. 
Yeah, I again, here I'm leaning on my Puritan forefathers and what Christ teaches us here. I think it's important to say there's nothing new in this book. You know, this has all been said before, but it's a pleasure to help people. And, and this area that you're asking about actually is an area where I've just, it's been so helpful to me and as a pastor to other people. So I think when Christ says, blessed are the pure in heart, we instantly think a clean heart. And in scripture, that's often the case. Clean isn't something we scrub, you know, something like that. But that's not exactly what he means there. Because I think what he's talking about, pure is in terms of undivided. It's a heart that is increasingly bent on a singular focus. So, for instance, um, you know, the bottled water we pass out is 100% spring water. You know, it lacks contaminants. Or a wool coat that's 100% pure wool. Or ground beef, at least in the United States, is 100% beef, you know. I guess in England they have a little bit of horse in there. So <laughs> Horses are for riding, not for eating. But anyway, so when we say pure, that's what he's talking about. And Peter talks about this, about our faith being purified, and he uses a metaphor there of smelting. So when you heat up the metal, you do that so you can scrape off the contaminants. And it makes the metal more pure, and hence it either makes it more valuable, if it's a precious metal, or it makes it more strong. And this is what Christ is getting at, that uh, the Reformation work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God in our hearts is helping us in this. Because the unregenerate person, the person who's not born again, doesn't know Christ, their heart is just a mess. It's dead, right? It's Right. You need to be born again, Jesus says to Nicodemus. But it's also scattered. They don't know where to go. You know, And that's why when we find lost people, usually they come to us with a cluster you know, of previous idols and problems. And this is one of the areas where God is most jealous, where Christ is most jealous to be at work in our hearts to truly purify our heart. In Ezekiel, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the thirty-six twenty-five says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Mm. So the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, the sovereign monergistic regenerating work and the sovereign monergistic sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit which is what we confess in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, has an outflowing, an outworking, and will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Not in order to be accepted with God, but because we have been accepted by God for Christ's sake alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Right. And that has consequences for our heart. Yeah. What I was just saying is true in Psalm 86, where it talks about unite my heart. And it's saying, help my heart not to be divided. Or we think how Christ, you know, praises Mary. says, Martha, Martha. (laughs) He says, you're distracted by many things. But Mary has chosen the one thing. And see, that's what he's talking about. That's a pure heart that is focused. And that's what we need. So that in one sense, we could say we see Jesus only. We see him, and then there's nothing else. And the other things will fall into place accordingly if we have that devotion to follow him. I'm convinced that this is what's behind in Mark when Christ is asked what's the greatest commandment. He begins with the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. And therefore, we should love him with all of our heart. And that's talking about that singular devotion because there is no other God. And I think this is very important that the Christian would be encouraged that Christ has sent his spirit to do this very thing in our hearts and and to turn us towards himself and to turn us away from things that we thought we wanted, that we thought we desired. You know, and sometimes he gives us a little taste of that. Okay, you want it so bad, I'll give you a little taste to show us, no, that's not what I wanted. 
And sometimes we have to relearn those lessons. Some of us are slower, <laughs> like myself, and you have to learn these lessons again and again. And, and what he's showing us is that, like in Psalm 37, at the end of the day, that he gives you your heart's desire. Inasmuch as that heart continues to be renewed and to pursue our God, and you find out, boy, these things that I used to love, they're just not very attractive to me anymore. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals, since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced, historically, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and the central truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. You quote C.S. Lewis from his essay, Men Without Chests, which is one of my favorites, obviously, always provocative quotation from Lewis. The head rules the belly through the chest. That's Lewis. You call the heart, this is your language, the indispensable liaison officer between cerebral man and visceral man. What do you mean by that? I think Lewis is just making use of this Puritan grid we're talking about. And, you know, I think Pascal means the same thing, that man is not going to think right until his affections are in order, until I love the right things. Not until that will I really be focused intellectually upon the right things. And it's interesting that, you know, we tend to pit emotion against reason, but, you know, you get a man, we'll just go with a man, and I mean that in the gender sense right now, really angry over a righteous cause. That man is never more focused in his thoughts. And that's true of us sometimes, that it really takes that emotional side of our heart, what we're calling our desires, to really be fully engaged. And there's never been such clarity in our thinking. It just goes to show how they work together. And I think Lewis is saying the same thing. You can educate, 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 educate all you want. That doesn't mean you're going to make virtuous men. Courage comes from the desires. Courage comes from one who has committed themselves to the right cause. And this is kind of way off, but in Marcus Luttrell's book, when he talks about Lone Survivor, Mm -hmm. it's so interesting. He talks about the men who showed the most valor that he worked with in the Navy SEALs were married men. And I think he says this, that it's because they had the most to protect. Their hearts were in what they were doing because the cause represented not just an ethereal cause of country. This is my wife and my kids. And it just goes to show this very thesis. And they already knew something about self-sacrifice, right? Right. With all due respect to – and you and I work with single men on a daily basis. So we love and and respect single men and God calls some men to singleness. So caveat, caveat, caveat. Uh, Nevertheless, when you're up at 3 in the morning holding a sick child – and you really want to be asleep, but duty calls you. So you have this orientation of self-sacrifice, a life really of self-sacrifice. So, yeah, I can understand that. And isn't it true that when we explain Christian truth, that we do need to engage the affections of those to whom we are communicating or with whom we are communicating? It can't be a purely cerebral 
intellectual exercise right? without being manipulative. Exactly. And if we're not appealing to this, I mean, I think it's uh, R.L. Dabney in his book on preaching. I think it's now called Evangelical Eloquence. He says, do we appeal to the emotions? He says, of course we do, to the godly, godly affections. And what he's saying is we appeal to them in the right way. You know, if you begin your sermon in the first five seconds, you give this tearjerker story, and that's all you do is go after emotion. Well, that's manipulative. Mm-hmm. That's being coercive. And you're appealing to sentimentality. You're not appealing to the heart. But the preacher who refuses to bypass the mind, but is on an errand also for the affections and the will, he is appealing to the right things. And this is true for all of us and of every age, that we want to, I think, engender our children in the same way, to love what we love. Because all of us want to love what God loves and what Christ loves and to be fully engaged with that. And I think it's very encouraging as a parent when we see our children not just be able to articulate things, but we see them responding emotionally. It means that we're tapping into the right things. It means that they are now drawing from a deeper well that Christ really wants his children to have. Isn't it the case that uh, the intellect and often follows the affections and the will? How many times have you and I been in the counseling room with somebody who was doing something, involved in something that they knew at some level, and we certainly knew was wrong, and they knew that we know it was wrong, but yet they were justifying it because their affections or their will were disordered, and now they were rationalizing, explaining away why the sin in which they were involved was okay. Right, right. Their their heart wasn't in it. Yeah. I mean, just to be straight up about it, their heart's not in it, because not all of their heart is in it. And I think that's why the command, the greatest command, says, with all your heart. It means every component, every aspect of it. I think this is what's behind the fact that David, when he exhorts his son Solomon, he uses language that's a little bit different from what we see with Hezekiah and Asa and Josiah, where they worship God with all their heart. He says to his son, make sure that you follow God with your whole heart. He says shalem. So it's for the same word group as shalom, which means, you know, wellness and peace across your life. And I think perhaps he's already on to the fact that he sees things in his son that concern him. Mm. Obviously, this is a good looking young man. He is very intelligent, gifted, good politician, as we see. But he's already seeing perhaps this is what my son needs to hear. And in his prayer, when he dedicates a temple in First Kings 8, you know, this is what Solomon prays. But then we find out a few chapters after that, but because of all of his gold, all the horses, and especially because of his many, many wives, he had not given his whole heart to God. And even though he perhaps knew the law better than any other man and could expound wisely upon that law, what you're saying is true. But because his, his affections were divided and because his will was not fully behind following the commands of God— he fell terribly. He is not in the roll call of faith in Hebrews 11. Samson is. Hmm. We, always, we always attach you know, discordant affections to Samson. I'm not sure we're fully justified in that. I'm not here to you know, defend his sterling <laughs> you know, history. But at the end of the day, he is jealous for God's glory and defeats more Philistines in his death because he was very focused upon what his life's purpose was. In the end, ironically, he could see. Hmm. I think it's one of the reasons that Samson's in the roll call of faith. We wouldn't put him there, but God did. Yeah. And it's because his will, in the end, was committed. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. What does the gospel do to our heart? So the Christian is hearing this and thinking, yeah, I need to grow. How does the gospel encourage the Christian in the renewal of the heart? Well, I think to answer the question, divide it into three parts. And the first part is it, as Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, after this beautiful exposition of the gospel, he begins right here and says, therefore, we need to renew the mind. And I think this should encourage us. 
that the Christian's mind is being renewed in, in the sense that God is helping you to understand. He's already opened your heart to understand the biggest question of all. But this is an ongoing process where he continues to teach us truth based upon Scripture. And so he's granted to us his word, which is very practical, Second Timothy 3.16 says, to teach us, correct us, rebuke us, and train us. It's a very full package. So we have this full complement of ways in which Scripture is going to help us to know. And I think one of the most important things, and this is to push back against postmodernism, which wants to say, you really can't know. And don't be so arrogant as to think you know. And Scripture goes exactly the opposite direction. I mean, John says in 1 John 5.13, we write these things so that you may know you have eternal life. And here's what's interesting. In the early church, you have a generation of Christians who did not have all the light that we had, but they had certainty. So much so that they would go to the stake and die for Christ. And see, that's a knowledge that has gone all the way down. And so it's not just belief, it's conviction that I will die for this. And Scripture is very concerned to tell us that we can know that we know. That's very different from some of the voices we're hearing in our day, that there is no absolute truth. There is no meta message. You, you can't really, really have certainty about these things. And Scripture is saying, no, you really can. Because most of all, what's important to know at the end of the day is that Christ is my Savior. And as I cross through the River Jordan through death, I am certain that he will carry me through and meet me on the other side. And you can rest in the promises where he says, I'm going to do this, which gets us to the last thing that the Lord is the keeper of your heart. There Obviously, there are many other things that we could discuss and right. encourage the reader to get a copy of this book with all your heart, orienting your mind, desires, and will toward Christ. But at the end, the Lord is the keeper of our heart. Right. And that's why the book ends on what is essentially a sermon. I'll just be very candid with you. It's, it's meant to be sermonic. It's a good sermon. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Uh, but I didn't write Psalm 121, uh, so I can't take credit for that. But six times you, the word keep appears there, and it's making the point. It never says, you know, we are to keep ourselves. It's almost assuming, you know, you and I can't do this. So God's saying, let me do what, what only I can do, and that in the end, he keeps us. And so the last section of the book talks about practical ways in which we are to, to keep our heart based upon Proverbs 4.23 and by paying attention to what we see and what we hear. And I talk about that, the gatekeepers of the heart. But in the end of the day, what is my assurance? Well, my assurance is that God can do what I can't do. I can no more sanctify myself than I can justify myself. So in the end, I'm thrown back upon the promise that God is going to help me, especially when we consider the fact that the spiritual enemies that I'm against are all greater than I am. Satan is smarter, stronger, and greater than I am in almost every way. It's more than I can handle. There are many, many temptations which are too great for me. And God tells us, he promises us, I'm not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, I'm going to see you through that. And you may you may fall down, but we're, I'm going to teach you through that. And this is a great promise for us that we'll fall down, but never stumble to the point where we can't get back up. And we have so many brothers and sisters who stumble. And some of that stumbling is not because of their committing sin, but because of their weak you know, condition or because they, they struggle so mightily against depression or anxiety or, you know, temptations of self-harm and th- things they don't understand or desires that they wish they didn't have. And here's this great promise, I think, of God that when it comes to your walk with me, that my hand is around you and I'm not going to fall asleep. I'm not going to be absent on the watch. I'm going to be for there when you come in and go out, which means just the everyday tedium of life. But when it also comes to the greater things in terms of all creation and the spiritual principalities that oppose us, again, which are all greater than ourselves, he is the keeper of Israel, and he will watch us. It's interesting, the book of Jude, that little letter, it begins and ends on this note. 
And in the middle of it is this exhortation to keep the faith, to contend for it. But it begins with, you know, the one who can keep us. And it ends with the idea of Christ who keeps us. And I like those bookends. And it helps to put in perspective in the context that, yes, you need to go about your duty. You must fight for this faith. You must rally for Christ. And, and you must struggle against enemy. But in the end of the day, it's Christ who keeps me, which is just another way of thinking of the gospel itself. In the end, it's not my love for Christ. It's his love for me. That's what saves me. It's not my persevering in him, even though it is by his grace. It's his persevering in me and for me. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.